0: This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. On the evening of February 19th, 1994... 31-year-old Gloria Ramirez was rushed to the emergency room of General Hospital in Riverside, California. Her heart rate was high, and her blood pressure low. She was having trouble breathing, appeared confused, and had difficulty responding to questions. Paramedics told medical staff that Gloria was also in the late stages of advanced cervical cancer, which she'd only been diagnosed with six weeks earlier. But the terminal illness could not account for the symptoms she was experiencing. Hospital staff set to work. Following standard protocol, they administered multiple drugs as they attempted to stabilize her. Some were meant to sedate her, while others were given to stabilize her heart rate. At the same time, staff manually pumped her lungs with air. But Gloria was not responding in the way staff were expecting. The next step was to use a defibrillator to shock her heart into a regular rhythm. To attach the electrodes to her chest, Hospital staff removed Gloria's clothes. When they did, they noticed that her skin appeared to be covered with an oily residue. They also noticed an odor that could be best described as garlic on Gloria's breath. The hospital needed a blood sample, but when the nurse began to draw Gloria's blood, she noticed a strong chemical odor. She passed the syringe to a respiratory therapist who was also working on Gloria. The staff knew that Gloria's cancer was being treated by chemotherapy, which can sometimes make blood smell like chemicals. But Gloria's blood smelled differently than expected. It smelled like ammonia. A resident attending to Gloria held the syringe up to a light. Inside the blood sample floated beige-colored particles. It was at this moment that the emergency room turned to chaos. Code Blue, Room 305 Code Blue, Room 305 all doctors to the ER. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. The nurse fainted. The doctor in charge of the emergency room caught her before she hit the floor. She reported a burning sensation on her skin and nausea and was promptly taken from the room. Before anyone could wonder whether the colleague had suddenly become inconveniently squeamish, the medical resident also felt lightheaded and nauseated. She left to get some fresh air, but just steps from Gloria's room, she passed out. The medical resident suffered tremors and had difficulty breathing. Moments after that, the respiratory therapist in Gloria's room also passed out. She later said, I couldn't control the movement of my limbs. Like dominoes falling, other hospital staff who had been in Gloria's vicinity began reporting symptoms, ranging from nausea, lightheadedness, shortness of breath, and muscle spasms. The hospital had no idea what was affecting their staff. They decided there was only one thing they could do, and declared an emergency. 20 staff members falling sick, triggering evacuations. Patients rushed outside on gurneys to a makeshift ward set up on the lawn. A hazmat team now joining in that investigation. The scene looked like a war zone. There were concerns that a toxic chemical was responsible for causing the medical chaos. Staff had to strip off their clothes to remove any irritants that could make their condition worse. A small group of hospital staff stayed behind to take care of Gloria. They continued to administer CPR and defibrillation, attempting to revive her and raise her dropping blood pressure. But their efforts were in vain. At 8.50 p.m., Gloria was pronounced dead. She'd been at the hospital less than 45 minutes. Hospital staff placed Gloria's body in a sealed aluminum casket. One of the nurses who helped move the body soon suffered nausea and felt as if her skin was burning. They still weren't sure what caused the debilitating symptoms of the medical team. Twenty-three of the thirty-seven emergency department staff had been affected. Five of them were admitted to the hospital for overnight observation. For the medical resident who was the second person in Gloria's room to pass out, the situation was much more serious. She was admitted to intensive care for two weeks, where she experienced continued respiratory issues, hepatitis, and pancreatitis. As if that wasn't bad enough, she also suffered from a vascular necrosis of her knees. This is a condition where bone tissue dies due to lack of blood circulation, and the bone can eventually collapse. It was a long road to recovery. Two hours later, the county's hazardous materials team arrived on the scene. The ER and the operating room shut off from the rest of the hospital as hazmat teams take samples. That's why we closed the ER. Uh, We don't want people in and out of there, you know, opening up the hallways and the doors so we can keep that, you know, the area of possible contamination to a minimum. Rumor got out, it's anesthesia gas. We don't know that. Uh, We don't know that there's a leak. Inside that hospital, a mystery. They scoured the emergency room for any signs of toxic levels of gases or other substances that could have caused the staff to fall ill. But there was no evidence of anything that could be responsible. Six days after Gloria passed away, the first of three autopsies was performed. The coroner and his team wore airtight suits and performed the autopsy in a sealed room. Samples were taken for further analysis, including blood, bile, organ tissue, and even air from within the body bag. By now, news of the circumstances surrounding Gloria's death and what had occurred at the hospital that same night had made national headlines. Gloria Ramirez became known as the Toxic Lady. The fact that the coroner's office refused to release further information following the autopsy only reinforced the moniker. But the reason why they hadn't released anything was because they simply hadn't found anything. When initial testing failed to yield any answers, the samples were sent for more rigorous analysis. They did find a few anomalies, but nothing of the scale needed to create the chaos in the hospital that night. A mass spectrogram revealed that, at the time of Gloria's death, there were multiple medications in her system. The team found anti-nausea medication and painkillers, including Tylenol and codeine. No surprises there, especially because she was undergoing chemotherapy. Gloria also had a urinary tract blockage. The team also found a derivative of ammonia, which may have been responsible for the smell of ammonia in the emergency room that night. But the particle was in very small amounts and had likely formed when Gloria's body broke down one of the medications she was on. So it was probably not the culprit. There were two other chemicals that could not be explained away so easily. One was nicotinamide. It's a compound often involved in the manufacturing of illicit drugs. It was unusual to find it in Gloria, especially because of her cancer. The other chemical the team was surprised to find was dimethyl sulfone. This chemical is often used as an industrial solvent, but can also be a naturally occurring chemical in the human body. The samples taken from Gloria during a second autopsy had high levels of dimethyl sulfone, which is odd because it usually has a three-day half-life, and these samples were taken from her body six weeks after she died. This suggests that she had a significant amount of the chemical in her body. Despite these interesting chemical finds, neither could result in the emergency room staff's symptoms or for Gloria's death. It is one of the most bizarre medical mysteries in recent memory, and doctors still can't explain it. It happened two weeks ago in a Southern California emergency room. A team of medical workers collapsed, apparently after inhaling fumes coming from the body of a dying woman. Two months after her death, in early April, Pathologists explained to the coroner that their testing revealed no sure sign of what caused the medical chaos that night. On April 29th, it was announced by the coroner that Gloria had died of heart failure due to her kidney shutting down as a result of her cervical cancer. Gloria's devastated family was outraged and refused to accept the findings. Riverside Hospital has been the subject of previous investigations, and Gloria's sister pointed to unsatisfactory conditions as the reason she died but the coroner failed to find any evidence of shortcomings regarding Gloria's treatment that could have caused her death. Sadly for her family, it would be two months from her death before Gloria's body was released for burial. There was a third and final autopsy, and Gloria's family had an independent pathologist present. Unfortunately, he was unable to determine a cause of death. Gloria's remains were too badly decomposed, he was unable to examine her heart, and other organs had been contaminated. On April 20, 1994, Gloria Ramirez was buried at Olivewood Memorial Park in Riverside. According to the LA Times, the Reverend Presiding, who was a good friend of Gloria's, took aim at county officials over their handling of her death. He told the crowd, quote, Gloria has not been treated right. Her death was unjust, and the treatment of her body has been unjust. The people responsible need to be held accountable for that. Her sister read a poem written by Gloria's 12-year-old daughter. Quote, Roses are red, violets are blue. The next time I find a red rose, it will be just for you. When the stars shine, it will remind me of you. Seeking the Truth Never Gets Old As the ivory casket was lowered into the ground, the reverend sang one of Gloria's favorite hymns, Amazing Grace. The 100 mourners in attendance heard how Gloria was a caring friend with a great sense of humor, who could always cheer others up in times of need. While the coroner's office and Gloria's family were at odds over the cause of her death, the forensic team had also not determined what had affected the emergency room staff. County health officials were unsatisfied with this, So, the matter was escalated to the state level. The California Department of Health and Human Services brought in two doctors to further investigate the cause of the mass illness. After speaking with 34 staff members who had been on duty that night, the state doctors found a series of patterns. First, the affected staff were primarily women. Second, staff who had been within two feet of Gloria and touched her IV had a higher chance of being affected. And third, Many of those affected had skipped dinner that evening. Not a heck of a lot to go on. The investigators said that no toxic chemicals had been found, and the paramedics who initially had contact with Gloria were not affected. Based on all this, the state doctors came to the conclusion that the staff had suffered a mass sociogenic illness. Yes, apparently, the odors coming from Gloria's body triggered a mass hysteria in the medical staff. In all of my years in the emergency room, I never encountered anything remotely like this. I must say, I certainly had times when I could smell things from the patient's lungs, but nothing that would knock me off my feet. And I must say that the more I've learned out here, the more questions I have. The family has raised some very legitimate questions about the victim. What really happened to her? And I think it would be a mistake to rush to judgment, the initial judgment we all had, that it was fumes from the patient's body or something in the patient's body. It may turn out to be that when we get the final results, but... A lot of unanswered questions that I think we're going to continue to follow. As you can imagine, this diagnosis did not go down well with the hospital. They were medical professionals who were trained to stay calm in the face of chaos. They faced stressful situations on a daily basis. The fact that it was suggested that Gloria's treatment would have sent them into hysteria was insulting. The medical resident who was suffering severe bone issues went as far as suing the hospital and the coroner's office. The respiratory therapist pleaded with the pathologists to re examine the samples, coroner's reports, and legal documents. By this point, however, it had been seven months since Gloria had passed away. Still perplexed by the case, the pathologists happily obliged. Looking again at the toxicology report, one of the scientists made a happy little error. He mistook dimethyl sulfone for dimethyl sulfoxide, also known as DMSO. It was a small error, simply misreading the report, and it had no impact on the story because he was quickly corrected and things moved on. But it stuck with him, and later, when he was reading the autopsy report, something else popped out. One of the defining features of DMSO is that it can smell like garlic, just like Gloria did when she came into the ER. The scientist did a bit of digging into DMSO, The compound is one oxygen molecule away from dimethyl sulfone, which is what they found in Gloria's body. But DMSO is only two oxygen molecules away from dimethyl sulfate. And here's the kicker. Dimethyl sulfate is technically a chemical weapon. In gas form, it will destroy any exposed tissue, such as the eyes, mouth, and lungs. If absorbed into the bloodstream, the symptoms get much worse. According to Discover Magazine, the scientists at the Forensic Center found a 1987 report put out by the Department of Defense called The Reference Book on Chemical Warfare Information. The report said that dimethyl sulfate is so lethal that 10 minutes of exposure to only half a gram could kill someone. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. Dimethyl sulfone was found in Gloria's body, and it's a short leap from that chemical to the toxic Dimethyl sulfide. But where did the dimethyl sulfone come from? This is where the DMSO comes in. Scientists hypothesized that Gloria had been exposed to DMSO through the weird and wonderful world of home remedies. We're all familiar with peppermint tea for an upset stomach and echinacea to help ward off the common cold. In the early 1960s, doctors started recommending applying DMSO as a way of treating muscle and joint pain arthritis, and even helping alleviate symptoms of anxiety. However, it was soon discovered that the use of DMSO could have negative effects on eyesight. In 1965, the FDA classified it as a dangerous substance, banning any further clinical trials. While the product stopped being sold by pharmacies, it was still available over-the-counter at hardware stores, and people continued to use it. What they perhaps didn't know was that the industrial-strength version of DMSO was 99% pure, a far greater concentration than the pharmaceutical grade recommended by their local doctor. The scientists hypothesized that Gloria had applied DMSO to her body in an effort to relieve the pain caused by her late-stage cervical cancer. When Gloria arrived at the hospital, it was noted that her skin had an oily sheen. DMSO has a gel texture that can leave an oily residue. When she collapsed, likely due to cancer-related kidney failure, paramedics on the scene administered oxygen. The oxygen combined with the DMSO and dimethyl sulfone was produced, likely in large quantities. Her urinary tract blockage may have prevented the chemical from being flushed out of her body. An experiment conducted by the scientists indicated that the particle seen floating in Gloria's blood was likely crystallized dimethyl sulfone. The scientists had connected the dots between DMSO and dimethyl sulfone, but now they needed to get from dimethyl sulfone to the toxic dimethyl sulfate. This is a bit more tricky and a lot more complex to explain. Long story short, the scientists believe that the dimethyl sulfone broke apart and combined with other chemicals in Gloria's body to create dimethyl sulfide. Normally, this would have been an unstable creation and quickly broken apart again, with nobody the wiser. But the emergency room was colder than a normal room, and when the nurse drew Gloria's blood, the breakdown was decelerated. When the toxic chemical made contact with the air, it vaporized. Those nearby were affected by the nerve gas, and this is what caused the chaos in the emergency room that night. The county coroner was satisfied with this theoretical explanation, but many others were not. Gloria's family rejected the DMSO hypothesis, They had no knowledge of her ever using the cream. Other scientific experts claimed it was chemically impossible for such a conversion to occur. Some claimed that one of the classic symptoms of dimethyl sulfate exposure, eye irritation, wasn't present in any of the affected hospital staff. A physiologist and professor of neurosurgery said that dimethyl sulfate is basically tear gas. He told Discover Magazine, When you're exposed to dimethyl sulfate vapors, the first thing that happens is it makes you start to cry. Years later, the case is still being debated. In perhaps one of the most absurd hypotheses, the now defunct alternative newspaper New Times LA proposed that the hospital staff had been manufacturing methamphetamine, smuggling it in IV bags. One of these IV bags had accidentally been used on Gloria, and the exposure to the methamphetamines had caused the reaction in the hospital staff, This theory was rooted in the fact that Riverside County had been one of the largest distribution points for meth. But this ridiculous theory was never proven. No other case like Gloria's has ever been seen. Because of this, it's caught the attention of pop culture, with shows like The X-Files and Grey's Anatomy writing episodes where a hospital patient's blood renders the people around them unconscious. While Gloria Ramirez's case might be a unique one, it's not the first time that a home remedy has potentially led to a disastrous result. But that's for another episode. As always, a huge thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with another episode.